Today we are beginning a family series. I try to do one of these about every two years. We're at about two and a half since our last family series. Um, I wanted to kind of get through. I was going to do it in the fall, but I thought let's just get through the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ and and then we can kind of do it between series. And so that is what we are doing. And I want to start this family series in a different way than I've started them before. One of the things that the Lord has been teaching me over the past couple of years and emphasizing so so much so that I want to pursue it in, in in greater ways is the principles of God's design and how important God's design, identifying and aligning with God's design is. As we look at what's happening in culture today, as we're looking what's happening, may I, may I say it more specifically, as we're looking at what's happening in Christian culture today, as we are looking at the changes that are happening, the compromises that are being made, what a great deal of it comes down to is that Christians are not any more able to articulate answers as to why the church has historically believed what it has believed and why they believe what what they believe from the Bible. And a big part of this is that the church has lost sight of the fact that God has a way in which he has designed things to be and that it is not our job to create a system. It is our job to identify God's system and to align with it. And I hope that as we have studied various topics, including these controversies in Christian circles, uh, we have seen this, that nothing that we believe stands on its own. Even as we talked about in our, in our series, in our Revelation series, nothing that we believe stands on its own. We don't just believe some high-level thing because we do. We believe it because it is built upon elements of the design of God and the character of God. Christian theology is a network of beliefs. And often our understanding of one element of our faith system is built upon our understanding of other, deeper, more foundational truths. As I mentioned, we saw this so clearly in our Revelation series as we spoke about why we believe what we believe, say, about the rapture or about the millennial kingdom or about any of these things, the role that Israel will play in future events. All of these are not... Doctrines in and of themselves that, that we, we derive simply by standing upon the black and white of Scripture as it relates to the teachings on these things. We are deriving them from our understanding of deeper, more foundational doctrines combined with the teaching of end times events. And when we seek to combine what we already know about God from all of the other foundational doctrines with these doctrines, then we come to a generalized conclusion that gives us some measure of confidence as to where we stand. And it's no different. As a matter of fact, it is preeminent as we talk about the family. And throughout the next several weeks, we are going to cover some topics which are are fairly plain and well understood and have a general sense of consensus, at least among those who regard the historic tenets of the Christian faith. But we're also going to cover the controversial principles which are no longer taught in churches, even if they are believed. Things which are uh, quick to cause confusion, misunderstanding, or offense, particularly among people who have assimilated the uh, definitions and the, the, the language of the culture that surrounds us as it relates to elements of family, elements of the doctrine of uh, the doctrines of God as it relates to marriage and family. And in order to make sure that the foundation of these things stands sure, today we are not going to get explicitly into our talking about the various roles of various parts of the family, marriage and family. Today we're going to simply speak about design. And I'm going to begin in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. I'm going to be jumping around. You can feel free to turn with me. Of course, I'll have them up on the screen as well. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the Bible says this, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. As we begin to consider the concept of God's design, it is founded first and foremost upon the reality that God is the one who has framed the created order. It was just two weeks ago uh, on our Tuesday night that we talked about this verse as we're walking through Hebrews 11 on Tuesday nights. And yet what we see here is that that when we talk about this word, the, the worlds, that 
God, that the worlds were framed by the word of God. That word worlds there is not the standard word that we would expect for the world. That would be the word cosmos. Instead, it's the word that speaks of the ages or the created order, the, the way that things are constructed, the very essence of the entirety of the created order. Through faith, we understand that the created order was framed by the word of God. And that the things which we see are not made of the things which do appear. God has put all things in order in this created order according to his good pleasure. Certainly we live in a world which is marred by sin. Sin was brought into the world by Adam, not by God. There are things that have changed in this world. Pretty much everything in this world was changed by sin. And yet when we look at the design of the world, the created order, the way things operate themselves, as we consider the universe as we know that it operates, as we can see the consistency with which it operates, when we talk about the laws of physics, and when we talk about the nature of time, the These are things which God set in order. God has designed the created order. God has designed this world to function in a certain way. And it stands to reckon that if God has designed it to function in a certain way, then it behooves us to figure out how God designed it to function. Because as we would regularly understand, if we use something in the way it's been designed to be used, it functions best. It functions best in the way that it was designed. So the Bible says that God designed the created order, that that the created order was framed by the word of God. But he doesn't just design it. He didn't just design it. He also sustains the created order. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, specifically speaking of Jesus Christ, and it's okay for us to talk about Jesus Christ as the creator because... The worlds were framed by the word of God, and Jesus is the word of God, right? And so in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, this is made very clear. For by him, this is Jesus Christ, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before or ahead of, in front of, all things And by him, all things consist. Not only have all things been created by the word of God, but Colossians chapter 1 tells us that all things were created for him. That all things were created by him and for him. That he is before, in front of all things, and by him all things consist. That word literally meaning are held together. That Jesus Christ created it. He created it in a manner that is consistent with himself because it was created for him. And he literally holds the created order together. So Jesus Christ is the creator and the sustainer of all things. Now by this we begin to discern a principle of which the whole biblical record teaches in absolute fullness. That God has designed the world and he has designed it to function in a certain way. And the way for us as a part of God's creation to experience maximum benefit from God's created order is to live in it according to his design. And wherever we resist God's design, we will find resistance by God. It is not our right, it is not our prerogative to define how the world functions. And to whatever degree we try to define how the world functions, to whatever degree we try to define our own design, we inevitably cause problems in our lives and the lives of others, cause problems in society at large. God's design through physics is really a great example of this very thing. If we try to understand this from a physical perspective, it makes perfect sense. God has designed the world to function in a clear and consistent way. And due to the nature of physics, the math of the earth, its relationship to other celestial bodies, its rotation, etc., gravity pulls us toward the earth. And as we stand on the earth, generally speaking, uh, as a constant, gravity is negative 9.8 meters per second squared. So we are being pulled toward the earth at a certain generally consistent amount of gravity. Of course, gravity is a little bit different as you get toward the poles. Gravity is a little different as you change heights and whatnot. But we would have to have a dramatic change in height for those things to take effect. But the fact of the matter is gravity exists. Now, there are things which can overcome gravity, 
Birds can overcome gravity. Airplanes can overcome gravity. But they don't defy gravity, do they? Gravity is still a part of the system. They just have thrust and lift to allow them to overcome the gravitational pull and so find the means by which to stay in the air, even though gravity would be pulling them downward. If they uh, attempted to defy gravity, it would pull them down just as it would pull anything else down. When thrust or when lift ceases, they fall to the ground. No matter how much I don't like this element of God's design, no matter how much I don't like gravity, I can't get around it. It exists. I can't define it away. I can't just say we're going to take gravity out of the dictionary and therefore it doesn't exist anymore. I can't just redefine gravity, therefore it doesn't exist anymore. I can't just ignore it. I cannot get around the force that is pulling me toward the earth. And if I try to ignore it, it will not end well for me. Right? If I go to the top of a building and I say, gravity, I defy you with all of my being and I step off, I'm going to fall to the ground just like anyone else. All of my positive thinking, all of my determination, all of my ignorance, uh, all of my compassion for someone who steps on a scale and says, I really don't like gravity anymore. All of my compassion for them saying, I really wish, you know, we just need to wish gravity away so that when you step on a scale, it doesn't show your weight anymore. It's not going to help. None of my wishful thinking, none of my positive thinking, none of that is going to define away what exists by God's design. The design of God remains in effect. And to this end, I want it, if I want it to be well with me, it behooves me to acknowledge the existence of gravity and then work within the context of gravity in my life and circumstances. I live within the world that is designed and I, I function with gravity in place. I identify the realities. I work within its design and it is well with me. Now, it's not always well with me because I trip and fall and these sorts of things, but that's a part of living in a world that has gravity. And this is the idea that I want us to see today. That just as God has designed the principles by which the physical world operates, and we, as God's creation, are bound by that, and to defy gravity or to defy the physical order of the world is to cause problems. I can't do it without causing tremendous problems for myself. It's the same with the spiritual. That God has designed principles by which the emotional and the spiritual, the unseen, operate. And whether I know these principles or not, they are in effect. And to whatever degree I can identify them and align with them, to that degree I will have a positive spiritual and emotional effect. And God has given us a book that has told us of His design and given us the means by which to understand it and the power through His Spirit to align with it for we who are in Christ. And that it's not only our duty to do so, but it's in our best interest to do so. So what I would like to do today is to give you a few examples of this as it relates to Scripture. I'm just going to go to a couple of different passages of Scripture, and we're going to see a few elements of God's design and how they play out. They're going to be elements that are familiar to you. We're not going to go to anything um, uh, deeply controversial or, or difficult to understand. I'm going to take things that will be fairly simple, fairly simplistic, and I'm going to draw them out for us to see that we're not just talking about God's commands, we're talking about God's design. And that God even works within His design as it relates to the world in which we live and how He interacts with mankind. And then, of course, we'll bridge the gap into the family, setting us up for our time together next week. So, the first element of God's design that I would like you to see is God's design in His judgment against sin. And this is the first example that we'll use, and the most obvious as well. We go to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, and then verse 20, and the Bible says this, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So we find here a principle that tells us that the soul that sins 
shall die for their sin. Now, we're not talking here, and again, we're not going to go off on, uh, on this tangent, but I'm not saying that the sins of the fathers don't have consequences upon the sons. Absolutely, they can. But those consequences are natural design consequences, not judgment of God. This is talking about God judging sin. The soul that sins will be judged for sin. He will bear his own sin. His son does not bear his sin, uh, and, and he does not bear his son's sin. The soul that sins will die. Each man has his own sin to bear, and to this end each soul will bear the weight and the shame of his own sin in judgment. From the advent of sin into the world, we have seen this principle play out in any number of ways, all pointing to the same problem. And this problem is well articulated by uh, David, the psalmist and prophet and king, in Psalm 14. He said this to the chief musician, a psalm of David, verses 1 through 3. The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. They are all gone aside. They are altogether become filthy. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. So David writes of the condition of mankind, that the heart of mankind is corrupt. Every one of us has, by nature, a corrupt heart. There is none that does good. No, not one. And God looked down from heaven, and the question is this. Did any of the children of men naturally understand and seek after God? Did any of the children of men, by their nature, want God? And the answer is no. There is none that are righteous. There is none that are right within themselves. They are all corrupted. Even if they know that there is a God, even if they understand their, their level of accountability, the corruption is there. There is none righteous. No, not one. Isaiah would write a very similar thing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7, where Isaiah writes this, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And there is none that calleth upon thy name, that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. For thou hast hid thy face from us, and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. We are separated from God. Even the things, the righteous attempts that we would make in our own power to, to do what we would consider by some standard to be right are as filthy rags to a holy God. And thus we are separated from God. This principle has and always will be in effect. And we understand, in fact, this to be the very foundational principle of why Jesus Christ had to come, right? We call Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection the substitutionary atonement in that what God was doing is finding the method to redeem mankind from the alienation, from the separation of the judgment of his sin, which he has to bear, within the bounds of the design that God has imposed upon the created order. How can God save anyone when we are born in our sin? How can God save anyone when there is none righteous, no, not one? How can God allow anyone into His presence? How can He have a relationship with anyone? How can He let anyone into heaven if we are all separated from Him by our iniquities? And even the good things that we would try to do by our standards of moral goodness are as filthy rags to God. This was the problem that God sent Jesus to solve, right? So God sent a sinless man, born of a virgin, not of a human father, not bearing the sin of Adam, divine in nature, 100% man, 100% God, veiled deity in flesh, and he came and he lived a perfect life. And here's the thing, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Father shall not bear the sin of the Son. The Son shall not bear the sin of the, the Father because they have their own sin to bear. But Jesus didn't have any sin to bear. Jesus wasn't a sinful man. Jesus did not have that separation from the Father that every other man has. Jesus did not live a life of, of, filth, of the filth of, of the, the rags of, of human righteousness. Jesus lived his life 100% submitted to the will of the Father, sinless. 
And if that man fulfills God's righteous standard, then by God's design, because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, and so God has designed it to where a spotless sacrifice could remit sin, by God's design, He sent one to be a spotless sacrifice. And that one was Jesus Christ, who knew no sin. And so God, within the bounds of His design, could take the sin of those who were called to bear their own sin and punish the righteous for that sin, the righteous man who bore none of his own sin. He bore the sin of mankind and thus created a way for man to be saved within the context of God's design. See, if we see God's design in this, if we see the nature of God's design, then all of these other elements of, well, what about all this, the all roads lead to heaven? All of these questions that, come, that, that, that will come to you, these controversies that would face the church, are no longer controversies. Because there is only one system in the history of history whereby God's design in the Old Testament remains intact while simultaneously being able to redeem the sinner. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we read in, verses, in, in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we have this reality that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then Romans goes on to say, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood, to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of them which believe in Jesus." All have sinned, so all have fallen short of God's glory. This is the design of God, and you cannot defy God's design. But Christ died on the cross to be a propitiation, that word meaning to appease the wrath of God, to atone through sacrifice. And through this appeasing of the wrath of God, through the shedding of His blood on the cross, through His submission to God's design, God was enabled within the bounds of his own character because God cannot deny himself within the bounds of his own character. This enabled God to be both just to maintain the justice that is essential to his character and simultaneously justify the ungodly so that when we talk about salvation, salvation is not ever, ever, ever. It has never been nor will it ever be God just looking at someone and saying, "Okay, I'm just going to overlook your sin. That's not salvation. And anyone who thinks that is salvation has it wrong because God cannot just ignore or overlook sin and simultaneously be just. No, your sin has not been overlooked. Your sin has been paid for. It's just you didn't have to pay for it. The wrath still got poured out. The judgment still took place. It just wasn't you that God judged. It was Jesus that God judged instead. And this is how God's design can stay intact so that He can still be just and we can still say the soul that sinneth it shall die. And every man will bear his own sin and still find mercy and grace with the Lord. Because Jesus, the one man who had never sinned, bore God's wrath on our behalf, and thus the condition for salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, accept what He's done for you, and thou shalt be saved. And all those who reject that sacrifice in unbelief are yet held fully accountable for these sins and are thus separated from God for eternity in a place of conscious torment called the lake of fire. To this end, we find this principle to be magnified to its greatest extent that those who identify and align with God's design are blessed, who acknowledge God's design that He is just, who acknowledge God's design that He cannot have fellowship with sin, who acknowledge God's design 
that there must thus be a perfect, spotless atonement for sin, acknowledge God's design that he sent Jesus to be this very thing, acknowledge God's design that Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again in victory over sin and over hell and over the grave, and acknowledge God's design that all of those who place their full faith and trust in that work and that work alone, not trying to earn it, not trying to deserve it, not being able to do anything to secure his salvation, but rather trusting in what Jesus has already done, will be saved. And so we have God's design in play. That God has a design. That this design has spanned every generation. And that those who identify and align with God's design face the natural rewards of doing so and spiritual rewards in the spiritual realm. And that those who fail to do so face the consequences of failing to do so physically and spiritually as the case may be. We see this. But what we need to understand is that the same concept spans every element. It's not just about salvation. Every element of God's design we can trace along this same path. That in any area of life where man identifies God's design and aligns with it, identifies the way that God, that the Word of God framed this created order, no matter how big or no matter how small, no matter how enjoyable or unenjoyable, if we align with God's design, there's spiritual blessing to be had, and generally physical blessing as well. And any area of life where a man fails to align with God's design, no matter how big or how, how small, there will be consequences for that failure. God has given us a user manual for life, and He has told us how life functions most efficiently. He has told us how to be right with Him within His design and how to find that blessing. Our next example. Let's look at God's design through His spiritual economy. God's design through His spiritual economy. So we looked at God's design as it relates to judgment of sin. Now we look at God's design as it relates to His spiritual economy. And what I mean by God's spiritual economy is, that how, is, is how God relates to the nature of this world, the wisdom of this world, the priorities of this world, the, the way that a man is successful in God's eyes as opposed to the way that a man is successful in man's eyes. And what we find in this life is that there is a way in which the world operates. It's a way that makes sense to men. The world in which we live and history as we have known it has always rewarded the powerful man, the wealthy man, the intelligent man. These are the men that get statues. These are the men that get put into our history books. These are the men that get rewarded. These are the men that find themselves in the best physical position on earth. We honor men for their intellectual achievements. We honor men for their financial achievements. We honor men for their strength and for their fortitude and for their physical achievements. The man that is the fastest, the man that is the strongest, he is the one that wins the medal. The man who is the smartest, he is the one that wins the trophy. The man that works the hardest makes the most money. These sorts of things fall into play. Uh, we, we not only see this as natural, but we see this as right, and particularly in the United States of America, where historically, at least, we have been a meritocracy. The idea being that those who work the hardest have the best ideas, persist in their efforts, use their have the best natural gifts, and use those natural gifts to the best effect. They are generally the ones that are rewarded for their efforts. And this is not a bad thing. And yet, as we look at the spiritual economy of God in His design, things are fundamentally different. Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18-29. through 29. He says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that... In the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. So God did not choose. He gave signs to the Jews. He certainly operates within the order of wisdom. And yet for all of that, that is not the power of God. The power of God is found in the foolishness of preaching. The power of God is found in a man standing up and saying, Thus saith the Lord. Why? Because that's where the Spirit of God is. 
We continue in verse 24. But unto them which are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. In this world where wisdom and power and wealth and honor dictate success, in this world where those are the marks of success physically in a man's life, it is not these things that bring a person's spiritual success. Much to the contrary. These are the things that Paul says can often hinder a man from finding spiritual success. That man relies upon his wisdom to understand God and he approaches everything through the prowess of his intellectual capacity to see if he can understand God and thus find himself on God's side. And he will fail utterly in his purpose by God's very design. The man who seeks to come to God through his personal strength. The man who seeks to commend himself to God by his physical accomplishments or the honor that he receives in this life. The man who would appeal to God and say, well, God, so many other people think I'm great, so you must think I'm great too, will not find success by God's very design. Because God has chosen the weak things, the frail things, the simple things of this world within which to manifest himself. And that for two reasons. First, the passage told us that all glory may go directly to God, not to man's capabilities, not to his abilities as it relates to spiritual matters and the rewards for spiritual obedience. But that no flesh should glory in God's presence. He has designed that the weak things of the world be the things by which he works. But secondly... This economy completely levels the playing field, doesn't it? It's interesting. In the world in which we live, where you are born and to whom you are born in the circumstances of your birth and the nature of your natural capacities, the, the, the skills that you have been given, mean a lot, don't they? Now, we live in a, a somewhat unique circumstance in the United States where, because of the general meritocracy within which we live, because, generally speaking, the government has uh, been a system whereby, in most, most of the history of the world, the government has written documents enumerating the rights of the people. In our country, the people wrote a document enumerating the limits of the government. And because of this tremendous freedom that we've been given, it has opened up the playing field so that those who are poor, those who start out uh, extremely disadvantaged, can find themselves tremendously advantaged in life. And we, we can, you can read story after story after story of people that lived in the slums in a single mother household and grew up to become someone who was extremely accomplished. Now, in other cultures, it's never quite been like that. In most cultures, they have what's called a caste system of some sort, where if you're born to the lower classes, you stay there and there's no way out. If you're born to the upper classes, you stay there and and, and there's no way out. You are what you are. You're either born into privilege and advantage or you're not. But we still have some of this in the United States, right? I was not born six foot five, 270 pounds. So I'm not playing football right now. I'm preaching. All right? There are people who have tremendous physical advantages at their disposal, and that allows them to to pursue certain opportunities that other people just can't pursue. There are people that have intellectual abilities that other people have, and they just have the capacity to pursue advantageous positions that other people cannot aspire to. There are certain people that are born in good families uh, and, and others that are not. And for all that people make their choices, I sit across people in the jail every week who were born to addict parents who lived uh, in, in terrible situations, who were addicted to drugs before they could even really discern much of anything. 
and who are now living in the consequences of, of, of that circumstance. So we have all of these different elements of life. And whereas our country has characteristically done a great job at allowing equality of opportunity, even for those that begin in various and, and different places, there's never been, nor can there ever be, an equality of, of, of opportunity or outcome to the fullest extent until Jesus Christ comes and makes all things right. But it is not so, as it is in the physical, it is not so in the spirit realm, is it? That's not how the spirit realm works. As it relates to the spiritual, the playing field is entirely level. There is no physical advantage, superiority, or capacity that brings any man closer to God. Now, we can say that there is an advantage, as Paul did. What advantage hath the Jews, he asks in Romans 9-11? through 11. Uh, Quite an advantage, he says, namely that they have been given the oracles of God. The person that is born in a Christian family and grows up in a Christian home hears the word of God more and so has a greater opportunity to assimilate the word of God in their lives. But what the scriptures tell us quite clearly is that every man has the, the, the truths of God revealed to him by the Spirit of God. The field is leveled by the fact that we are all sinners. No man gets to heaven by virtue of his family connections. No man can be right with God by virtue of his physical capacities or intellectual capacities. The smarter man doesn't have a greater chance to be, to, to be right with God. God has not uh, put us into a great spiritual gladiator match, and the guy that comes out on top wins his favor. The field is leveled. See, because 1 John 2, 2 says that Jesus Christ was the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also the sin of the entire world. Which means what? Which means every single person is on a level playing field, a level playing field as it relates to coming to Christ. And finally, the field is leveled by the fact that the barrier to entry is something anyone can achieve. The just shall live by faith. From the poorest to the richest, from the least to the most intelligent, from the weakest to the strongest, the standard is the same and it is achievable by all, and that standard is faith. To this end, we find two indelible elements of God's design which if we can identify and align with them will give us absolute success in God's spiritual economy. If we reject these elements of God's design, we will fail to find success no matter how many physical advantages we have. And the first element of God's design that will bring us success is found in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We're talking about it Tuesday night. But without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You want to please God? You're not going to earn it by doing stuff. You're not going to get it because you're the smartest in the room. You're not going to get it because you're the richest in the room. You're not going to get it because you're the tallest in the room or the strongest or have the most influence. If you want to please God, you're going to get it by faith. And it's very possible that the youngest child in here could please God more than anyone else. And it's very possible that the least intelligent person in here could be the one who pleases God the most. And it's very possible that the poorest person in this room can be the one that pleases God the most. And not just in any field. It's quite possible that the poorest person in the room could please God the most with his or her giving. Like the widow in her might. It's quite possible that the least intelligent person in this room could have the most power of God upon his preaching. It's quite possible that in our weakness, that magnifies our compulsion to have faith and thus makes us the most spiritually successful. God is pleased by faith. Not by efforts, not by works. Now James 2 makes it clear that our faith will, without fail, inspire our works to be done. But I can't please God by the sheer amount of money I give to the church I can, however, please God by the faith through which I give the sum that He has called me to give. I cannot please God by the sheer number of times I come to church, but I can please God by the faith through which I attend to, to the extent that He has allowed and asked me to do so. 
I can't please God by the sheer number of hours I put into Bible reading or into prayer, but I can please God by the faith through which I devote my time, I devote my efforts to Him as I seek to grow in my relationship with Him. It is the faith that undergirds my actions that pleases God. It's not just the action itself. To this end, my physical circumstances, my personal capacities, my abilities are only as good to the extent to which they are yielded to God in faith. And no man, regardless of their physical, economic, intellectual abilities or shortcomings, is at any disadvantage when it comes to pleasing God. Because if they come to God by faith, then they have pleased Him. We can all live in our circumstances and our situations by faith. So the first element of God's economy and God's design is faith. The second is very deeply related. We find it in James chapter 4. It is what we, one of these verses that we're memorizing this month. James chapter 4 verses 5 through 10 says this. Do ye think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, purify your hearts, ye double-minded, be afflicted, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. The second indelible design principle that undergirds everything spiritual First is that the just shall live by faith and that faith pleases God. Second is that humility brings exaltation. God gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. There's no way around this. If you, can, if you act in pride, God will resist you. If you act in true humility, you can expect God's grace and assistance upon you. And once again, this design principle spans any any manner of economic spectrum, any manner of physical capability, just because a man has no intelligence doesn't mean he thinks he has no intelligence. Just because a man uh, has gotten himself into a bad scrape doesn't actually mean he thinks of himself as a man that has problems. As a matter of fact, about, probably about half of the people that I sit with across from jail really think that they're something pretty special, even though their lives are a ruin. There's pride there. There's pride there. And God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Indeed, we cannot accept Jesus Christ as our Savior without humbling ourselves before the reality of our own sinfulness, the reality of our incapacity to get to God, the reality of our need for Him. Indeed, we cannot find that which we seek of God in spiritual power, in spiritual blessing, in the, the ability to, to affect others with the gospel of Jesus Christ unless we have humbled ourselves before the power of God. And once again, you can see how this operates in general contradiction to the way the world characteristically functions. Now, the world sees humility and the world likes a humble person. The world can identify with someone who is humble. Maybe they see it as something unto which to aspire, but at the end of the day, when we talk about how the world functions, humility is a weakness, isn't it? Humility is something that gets in the way of true worldly greatness. And so we have the self-esteem movement today, which is attempting through their various philosophies to tell people that if they can just have enough pride then they'll find success. If they can just think enough of themselves, love themselves enough, the power of positive thinking, then they'll find success. It's even found its way deeply into the church, word of faith movement in particular. But that which is despised by the world, that which lends itself to no glory, honor, or power on this earth, is in fact the very thing by which God says man is exalted in the heavens. See, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
And this is the design of God in every aspect, every time, every place, every circumstance, every context. This is how God has designed spiritually the world to function. The just shall live by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Before honor is humility. And we see that God has designed this world to work in a certain way. We align with God's principles. That doesn't mean we're going to find all manner of physical success. It may not always make us wealthy. It may not, certainly not going to change our, our height, our stature, any of those things. But we align with God's principles and we find God's blessing. And we could spend weeks in a topical series going from Old Testament uh, uh, account to Old Testament account, New Testament account to New Testament account, observing God's design and man's interaction with God's design and how these principles play out. But we're not going to do that. However, now as we come to a, a general close, I want us to see, and this is where we're going with this, finally, a third example, and this example is going to lay the foundation for our series, God's, exam, uh, God's design through His appointed ministers. We started looking at it in First Peter this morning as well, and we'll be doing so over the next couple weeks. God has appointed that what the Bible calls ministers are given God's authority upon this earth. And these ministers are realized through institutions which God has established in order to create a stable and a functional society suited to understanding and knowing the revelation of God. We generally regard three functional institutions in society. Government, church, and family. We would lot the master-slave relationship into that family relationship, that, uh, that labor and sustenance is an extension of the family, certainly not an extension of the government, and every time they try to make it an extension of the government, it fails miserably, i.e., what's happening in Venezuela, i.e., communist Soviet Union. And so we see this general design whereby government has been commissioned by God to protect and preserve life and liberty, to avenge evil. Family is designed by God to raise, discipline, train, and nurture the next generation. Church is designed by God to protect and proclaim the truth and to edify the saints. Each institution has its own realm of authority that's given by God, and if each institution performs its role properly, and of course this is a generalization, if they perform their role properly, and the degree to which each, each institution recognizes its own authority, what it has and what it doesn't, and respects the authority of the other institutions, there is success in society and culture. So let's look at a few of these principles just briefly. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. We were there this morning. Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of him of them that do well. Here we find the commission. It's repeated in Romans chapter 13. It's repeated in Titus chapter 3 to submit to the ordinances of government. This includes the paying of taxes. It includes the submitting to laws and honoring of the leader of our people. As the First Peter 2 goes on to say, honor the king. Conditions are not placed upon these commands given to a people who were under persecution of their government and subject to paying taxes, not even to their own benefit, but to an occupying nation under a dictator who was uh, ambivalent toward them and who was taking that money and using it as he saw fit, not necessarily for the nature of the people. And yet Peter calls for them to submit. It's a call primarily to faith and to obedience. Not because it makes sense, not because it's always easy or expedient, but because it is the design of God. Romans 13 verse 1 makes this clear. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there's no power but of God. Here it is. The powers that be are ordained of God. God has ordained government. We see a similar standard for, as I mentioned, the master-slave relationship where God commands the servant to submit to the master even if his master is not a good man. Even if he's not doing right by the servant, he is still compelled to submit to him. Not just the good and gentle, Peter will say, but also the froward, the unkind. 
Within our three-tier system, then, we talk next about the church. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey them that have rule over you and submit yourselves. If you look in the broader context, uh, the, the church is the idea here, the elders. For they watch for your souls, as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief. For that is unprofitable for you. The word obey here is not the same word that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, calling children to obey their parents. Children are called to obey their parents, and that word is not the word that we see here. This word speaks of trusting or having confidence in your leaders, those that rule over you. Place your confidence in them as those who watch for your soul. As those who you regard as having a vested interest in loving you and keeping you right with God, and so trust them. So place your, your, your confidence on them as they function in this capacity. Now this corresponds to the concept in 1 Peter chapter 5 where the elder is said to lead the flock, but not by constraint, willingly. See, you don't get to choose your parents, so the word obey there is a little bit of a higher standard. Do what they say. You get to choose your minister. And so, if you're going to choose your minister, then you, you need to recognize some things. You're under no obligation to submit yourself to the ministry of the church, but you should, if you choose to do so, honor the authority of the leaders of this church. And it's not because the pastor's a better Christian than you. It's not because he's a better man than you. It's not because he's a better leader than you or because he knows all, of, uh, all things or anything of the sort. But rather because God has ordained the church. He has ordained leadership of qualified men confirmed by the church as men that are called of God, ordained by the church, and thus the call is to willingly follow his leadership as one who has been blessed given and gifted by God to watch for your soul. And there's a blessing to those who align themselves with this design. A blessing upon a man who submits to the qualifications and the calling of the ministry and a blessing upon the flock that gives that man who the church body has recognized to be a called man of God and ordained him to be a man of who is recognized as a man who God has called into the ministry, that the church would then trust him. That the church would have confidence in him as one who is led by the Lord, by God's design. And this leads us to the final institution and the reason why this message directly relates to our family series and that institution is the family. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Children are called to obey their parents, and we'll talk about this more in a few weeks, but they're called to obey their parents not because their parents are good parents or bad parents. Not because they trust or respect them, but because God has designed it to be so and he has afforded a blessing to those who align with his design. That it may be well with thee and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Likewise, fathers are commissioned to care for, to nurture, to admonish their children in the ways of the Lord. And this is how God has designed things to work. And if we recognize this, and we recognize that God has a design in the created order, and if I step off this step, and I'm not ready for it, I'm going to fall to the ground, because gravity is not just going to uh, skip me for a second. Then if I step off the ledge of God's design as it relates to the family then I'm going to be the worst for the wear. It's not going to work as well as it could otherwise. It's not going to be what God has designed it to be. Likewise, if I identify God's design and I align with it in good faith as best I can, prayerfully seeking the Lord's guidance, there is blessing to be found there. The relationship with husband and wife is also this way. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22, 23, 25. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
God has designed the marriage relationship, its authority relationships, and its purposes to function in a particular way. And whether or not that way is easy, and whether or not that way is culturally acceptable, and whether or not that way makes most physical sense, there is a design in place that God has given to marriage. And when we identify and align with that design, there is blessing. Husbands are to love and nurture and lead their wives. Wives are to submit, align themselves with their husband. And if we want to experience God's blessing on our marriages, but, but pastor, if we do things this way, uh, it's going to cause problems, but, but only to the extent that you're not submitted. When you align yourself with it in faith, you'll find what Christian families and couples have found since the beginning, which is that there's joy to be found here. There's blessing to be found here. This is where. This is where. We find a system in which our, our children are most likely to identify the truths of God's word and be drawn to them as they see mom and dad functioning in a functional Christian relationship, as they see the parent-child relationship functional. Why? Because God relates himself to us as his father. Because God relates us to him as his children. Because God relates his, his relationship to his church as his bride. And God relates himself to the church as a bridegroom. Which means every day that you live within the design of God as it relates to family, you are exemplifying truth to your children, to your neighbors, to society. And every day that you come outside of this design and you live in a manner that breaches that design, you are hiding your light under a bushel. And as a matter of fact, to the degree that you testify to be a believer and you exemplify this design, you might be hindering more than anything else. There's a design. And as we consider these institutional pillars of our society, anyone who has been paying attention knows that all three of these institutions are entirely dysfunctional in the United States of America and really in the Western world. Government has eroded the family structure through welfare system, among other things. The government is beginning to be used to censor the capacity of the church to proclaim truth. Families have given their children over to be raised by government schools, have given their children over to be raised by church programs, deeply weakening the influence of the family upon society and the church, Because the family unit has been eroded. Church has failed to teach truth, failed to hold the line on truth, failed to protect truth, and has yielded truth on the altar of convenience. And what we find is that if each institution had a proper perspective, if they submitted themselves to the authority which it has been given and recognized and respect the authority which it has not been given and respect the authority that other institutions have been given... It will understand that it has a strong, vested interest in preserving the authority of the other institutions, rather than trying to take that authority for themselves, trying to take that power for themselves. It's not rightfully theirs, so God is not going to be maximum, maximally blessed in it. The very essence of how we as a church operate at Legacy Baptist Church is in response particularly to the unhealthy trend of the father feeling as though he sends his kids off to school and they become smart and he sends his kids off to Sunday school and they become spiritual or youth group and they become spiritual. And there is a tendency within our Christian culture for the father to yield his authority willingly to the church. And the church, instead of saying, no, we don't want that authority, they've actually taken it. And while in, in certain perspectives, this is fine. It's wor it works out in, in, in any number of cases where a young person gets underneath a good youth pastor or whatever and, and things go okay. It's not God's design. And because it's not God's design, that God has designed the authority of the family, that role, that nurturing, teaching role to be with the family, not with the government, not with the church, Church is to edify the saints, but not to raise up children. Though it's a well-meaning and well-intentioned idea, 
to help along the way, when that authority is given over, we are breaching God's design. We don't even need to talk about the nitty-gritty and the practical of church to church. Let's talk about God's design. So we exist in the manner we do with the design and framework we have because we believe the church has begun to encroach into the proper role of family and in doing so has caused an actual breakdown of family values. Now, again, the church nor fathers intend this to happen. The church does not encroach upon the father's authority and responsibility because the church wants a breakdown of the family. No. Much to the opposite. The church wants the... You go to any church of general orthodoxy and they want the family to thrive. They want the family to thrive. That's actually why they have children's programs, right? But in their desire to help families, they're actually taking the authority and responsibility which is not theirs to take and thus muddying God's design. And when you muddy God's design, it's, it doesn't work as well as it could otherwise. And this in turn has also weakened the church. As young men and women are not properly trained and so either leave the church in allure to the world, statistics say that three out of every four young people are leaving the church today when they come of age, or they step into leadership roles in the church for which they are absolutely unprepared and unqualified. To this end, and, and that erodes the church. And then the church starts the downward cycle that the family's on. The church needs the family. The family needs the church. But the church doesn't need to encroach upon the family. And the family doesn't need to encroach upon the church. We need each other's, we need each other's exclusive authorities to be intact if we are going to function best. Which is why we are what we are as a church. To this end, as we mentioned a few moments ago, the church has a vested interest in seeing the family maintain its authority rather than yielding that authority to another institution, even the church itself. Legacy Baptist Church does not want the responsibility of raising, nurturing, discipling, and training your children. And when the church takes this responsibility upon itself, or when the father tries to yield this responsibility to the church... Not only does it fail to have the ability, the church have the ability, infrastructure, or resources, no matter how big, to do the job justice, but in doing so, the church is actually disarming the family, blunting its edge, eroding its effectiveness, and reducing its influence, even within the church itself. Now, the object of this series over the next several weeks is to teach and emphasize the themes as it relates to families, husbands, wives, parents, children. More generally, we'll talk about biblical manhood and womanhood, not intended by any means to be the training our children need, but intended to inspire us to take the responsibility to be godly families. One of the things you'll find is that within this church, if you choose to yield your responsibility to raise your children to the church, if you trust that my sermons are going to be enough to keep your children spiritually safe, biblically trained, and prepared to go out into the world, you might just lose them to the world. Because that's not the structure of this church. It's not how we're structured. We are not set up to be that for your children. You're set up to be that for your children. We're set up to teach you the Bible so that you can lead them in the way that they should go. The church's job is to teach truth. The church's job is to defend truth. And as it relates to the family, the church's job is to provide parents with the tools necessary for them to do the work, to create an, a, an environment conducive in fellowship to helping and guiding you in any way as you raise the next generation. And all of this comes back to a foundational understanding that God has designed this world to function in a certain way. Sin has most certainly tainted this world, tainted our perception of things, tainted the way the world, as in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, functions. But it nonetheless stands 
that though sin has tainted our perception, marred our understanding and culture, opposed the outworking of these principles, the principles are still there. On the authority of God's word, we must have the faith to believe that if we do things God's way, whether or not we inherently like them, agree with them, or feel comfortable with all of the implications of them, there will be a spiritual blessing for it. And when we see through the eyes of faith, we will see that regardless of what the world says, God's way is best. God's design is best. And so this is why I began our series this way. This foundational understanding that what we are looking for over the next few weeks is not, well, the Bible says I have to do this, so I'm going to do it. Or, well, the Bible says this, how can I find a way around that? Or, the Bible says this for you and that for you. It's not about that. What, what, what we're talking about over the next few weeks is how has God designed the family to function? And what does that mean for you? If you are committed, before we even get into the series, before we even talk about individual obligations of husbands, wives, parents, children, if you are committed to saying, God, if I find your design in it, I'm going to align with it, that's where you need to be. That's what you need to be looking for. As an outworking of God's design, we commit ourselves to this design, seeking maximum spiritual blessing and maximum spiritual success. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.